0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. On this episode of Strange New Worlds, we bring you the second half of an interview with Professor Sherry Wells-Jensen of Bowling Green State University. As a linguist, Sherry was involved in creating species 10 C's language, for the latest season of Star Trek Discovery, which was the subject of last week's interview. But in addition to her interest in extraterrestrial linguistics, Dr. Wells Jensen is also one of the foremost experts in disability and inclusion in space exploration. So today, we talk to Sherry about portrayals of disability on Star Trek, how disability can be utilized as a model for first contact with an extraterrestrial civilization, and how she's working to change the landscape for who can and should go to space. Engage. All right. So let's talk about your research on disability and its relation to space exploration. And I think probably the best way to get into this is uh, if I could kindly ask you to tell us a little bit about your own disability and the role that it's played in shaping your academic interests and trajectory.
1: Sure. So I'm I'm blind. I'm fully blind. Uh, and I was born in a small town, a beautiful little small town with a nice family and good people in rural southern Michigan. And I grew up drawn. I, I need a stronger metaphor than magnet or similarly than like a magnet. I just need something that uh, I just resonated so deeply with everything science. It's mm-hmm. I loved it. It's what I wanted to do. I thought it was absolutely just the, the wholeheartedness. With which some people who I think of as, I don't know, scientists who are in love with science, the wholeheartedness with which they just fling themselves into it. You know, they don't like stand at the edge and look down and go, oh, there appear to be rocks in the mud in this cave. They're like down there on their bellies in the mud going, I'm going to turn <laughs> this one over. I got to see what this is. I'm going to pick it up. I'm going to sniff it. Yeah. Gonna, ah. And you just absorb your whole thing gets absorbed in just the, the joyfulness and the the wonder. Of what it's like to be alive in the world and how profoundly weird it is to be a sentient being walking around with experiences. Yeah, and just that drive to what is that? Like you're two years old. Like what is that? What is that? This is like that mm-hmm. never goes away, right? So that was my mindset, um, and I began to accumulate data as time went along and i noticed things like a couple scenes come to mind like my uh eight eight years old doing doing a science lesson designed for blind kids they told us we're going to go do something about trees and my little brain thought oh yeah baby we're going to go out okay maybe the, we'll climb trees which i like to do but i'm going to mm-hmm. go out and i'm going to learn how to identify trees i'm going to we're going to like poke our fingers in the bark and we're going to sniff it because I read that you can tell things by sniffing the leaves right and we're going to we're going to climb up the tree and get leaves and we're going to climb we're going to lay on the ground and feel around under the mulch and like feel what the shape uh, of of the root system that we can find is and we're going to do all these things and it's going to be magic because then I'm going to have all this new perception of the trees and in my world and they won't just be tree things they'll be they, they whole. I was waiting for this whole world of individuals to open up in my mind, and a whole new way of categorizing the world, and all these words like oak and beech and aspen or what you know birch. All these things would stop being just empty lexical categories, and they would become true things that I could learn about. The lesson that we had was we were taken by the hand, walked up to a tree, someone else picked the leaf, handed it to me, told me what it was, and my science activity was to glue it onto a piece of construction paper and write the name of the tree under it, which I was to spell correctly. And I thought, oh, so this is the level at which I am expected to interact with science. This is where I fit on the spectrum of people who are being guided into science because i'm a kid right i'm not in charge mm-hmm. of who gets to do science and you know there there's this myth that you can just as an individual defy everything and follow your dream i just don't know if that ever truly happens we do things as communities we do things we help each other, right? We mentor each right. other. We guide each other along. It's my job when I have a linguistic student who shows some interest to go, hey, look at this. You can do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not here's a piece of construction paper, glue that down. So it's not that anyone ever told me you are forbidden to go into science, but I could definitely read the room. So I, I did uh, undergraduate degree in psychology. Because I was a mash watcher, you know, mash, and I wanted to be what's his name? Sidney Friedman, like the guy, the psychologist who comes into the war zone and like knows the answer and frees the people, <laughs> like does the analysis, like you have that you have that crooked back because you smelled swamp water and that triggered this traumatic memory. and he does he had insight and power, social power, and um, he really helped people. But that's really not what most psychologists do. <laughs> So I uh, ended up with a degree in linguistics because when I was in the Peace Corps, I thought our language teachers were brilliant and language is cool. And I am, um, I usually say, so I gave up science and I got a degree in linguistics and now I'm miserable for the rest of my life, but that's totally not what happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> linguistics is great. It's like doing science, but with language, you know? Uh, yeah, And when I uh, when I arrived at this gig in Bowling Green, our then chair of the department said, what would you like to teach for your summer class this year? And I, thinking he would tell me to go roll my hoop, said, I'd like to teach a class in alien language construction. Is that cool with you? And instead of of laughing at me, he said, oh, okay, go do that.
0: (laughs) Wow.
1: So I did. It was a great class. Super engaged students. It was so much fun. It was the best class. Nothing, I wish I could take it. I well, you know, get a hold of my department chair. <laughs> <laughs> um, and fourteen years later, Doug Vakitch, who is the president of METI, saw my stuff online, and invited me to a colloquium at the SETI Institute. And after my head stopped exploding, that's when I did my deep dive into the literature and read about uh, the lack of blind aliens. So now. <laughs> no, i get to do astrobiology and i never thought i would be doing what i'm doing now and i'm just every day i wake up grateful i just it's amazing
0: that's such a fantastic story thank you for sharing So, Sherry, I don't really speak to people with disabilities on this show nearly as much as I should. And um, I noticed that in a paper of yours that you very carefully write about the distinction between identity-first and person-first language when it comes to speaking about disabilities. And I'm rather ignorant about this, but I genuinely want to learn. So what is the difference between identity-first and person-first language?
1: Okay, so as a linguist... I'm going to lay down the rule that this is really important because um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's language and not just because I don't want to hurt people's feelings and I don't want to be rude and I don't want to hurt people's feelings and I don't want to be rude, but that's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. It's about how you conceptualize disability, not how you okay. conceptualize people, but how you conceptualize disability um, because we are bad at conceptualizing people. We like to think we Oh, everyone's the same. We love them, but we don't. So how do you think about disability? Do you think about disability as something that a person that shapes their lives, that influences them? Or do you think about disability as a bad, terrible thing that you don't want to talk about? Mm. So, and I have to say off the top that there are people within the disability community that will passionately argue for hours about which one is correct. So the form that I have been instructed to use by journals is person-first language, because we value people more than their characteristics right so i'm supposed to say a person with a disability literally putting the person first a person who Mm. is blind this can get rhetorically kind of complicated if you say a person who is blind uh i've also heard people saying a person who happens to be blind i've also heard people say a person who happens to have the characteristic of being blind it can kind of spin into sort of this downward cycle of
0: sure yeah
1: we can't say the b word
0: (laughs) It's like pushing it farther and farther off, you know, into the right. distance.
1: And the intention is laudable. The intention is we want to talk about people. We don't want to label them as their disability. I see. Uh, so that is that is what I'm told to do by journals. But if you are an activist or if you, if you are a person that does not think of your disability as a tragedy, then there's no problem calling me a blind person because... Also, there's no problem calling me a smart person or a charismatic person or a Mm -hmm. fun person or a nice person or a friendly person. Why You wouldn't call
0: yourself a a person with smartness.
1: (laughs) No, I would not. And so the argument is that disability is kind of a genius way of living in the world uh, because Mm. there are structures in the world that are built for non-disabled people. That's how the world is built. So my inability to see is kind of a pain in the neck sometimes. Like I said, there are logistical advantages to being able to see. But it doesn't have to be such a big problem if, for example, I have a computer that talks to me. So my problem the problem with me and my computer is not that I can't see the screen. The problem with me and my computer is that we built computers that don't talk. Yeah. So the social model of disability would frame it this way. The situation for disabled people is a pain in the ass, they would never put it that way, is a pain in the ass because of the built environment and because of culture. So we treat people the way we do because we're afraid of disability, because we don't want to be disabled ourselves, whatever, whatever. We build our houses with stairs because, you know, we don't want to be in a wheelchair. We don't want to think about wheelchairs. We don't like wheelchairs. We think that wheelchairs are confining and bad and we don't, we don't want to think about it. So for the person in the wheelchair, that's a pain in the neck. But if we built all our houses with ramps from the get-go, then the person in the wheelchair would have no problem going into that house.
0: Right. Yeah, so, so let's talk about how um, disability can be really a big part of space exploration and our conception of it so to do this let's bring in star trek again um species 10c and star trek discovery are depicted as leaps and bounds ahead of the federation in terms of their technological prowess and in a paper that you wrote titled models of disability as models of first contact you argue that encountering a more technologically advanced species could cause trauma to a civilization that previously thought that they were the pinnacle of advancement and that looking to how able-bodied people and people with disabilities interact here on earth can teach us how we might expect to coexist with a more advanced alien species like the 10c so Could you please tell us a little bit more about how we can use models of disability as models of first contact with extraterrestrials?
1: You're officially my favorite person right now because I love that paper so much. (laughs) I love it so much. What I was looking for. So when, when we talk about, when people talk about an advanced civilization meeting a less advanced civilization, mostly what we, what people go to is, you know, we did that Europe came over and basically killed and enslaved everybody. So don't get your hopes up about an advanced civilization coming to earth, because when we had that opportunity to interact with a less technological developed set of humans, we basically killed them and enslaved Mm. them and destroyed their culture. Um, So I was looking for something else. Like, is there a powerful group that coexists with another group in a way where they're both still alive and there have been? deliberate and systematic attempts to commit genocide against disabled people at various times in the history of humanity. Um, But setting setting those aside, if we dare. um, So how do we get along? And can we squeeze from that some kind of hope about how we could get along with a race of super advanced people? And maybe coexist in a friendly, nice way. So basically in that in the paper, I just laid out kind of some of the things that people think about disability, like it's a punishment from God. So if the aliens come and they think our situation is a punishment from God, however, they conceptualize that, that's probably <laughs> bad news for us. They might just wipe us out as a scourge, right? Yeah. But if they think of us as set aside by God to be inspiring, as some people do with disabled people, then that would have a whole different effect on the way they would treat us. True. I don't think we would like it. I mean, we might no. like it initially. <laughs> like, ooh, look they're bringing us stuff. That's nice. But it's not a way to coexist with equality and Right, um,
0: it would be a bit patronizing. It would be terrible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If they think of us as if they think of us along with the medical model of disability and they are nice people, the medical model of disability says that every disabled person is a broken version of an able-bodied person and Medically, we can fix some of that, and off we go to the races. Now, sometimes this is a useful thing. I mean, I'm not anti-medicine, right? But I am not going to sacrifice my whole life banging my, my little head against a brick wall looking to become a sighted person. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So given that, how do I live my life and how would I expect to be treated by medical personnel? They're all still hoping that I won't keep living the way I'm living. Like most eye doctors are like, Oh my God, I'm really sorry. I want, Can I do something for you? <laughs> um, so if the aliens see us as sick, they might just come and fix us, right? They might just come and change mm-hmm. us. Like let's just come down and make all these humans into they would conceptualize humans as broken versions of aliens, right? But so we yeah. better come down and take away those weird extra arm appendages they have because those look bad to us and we don't have those. And let's install whatever sensory systems we have so that they'll be better. Never mm. mind that we're doing fine. I mean, I wouldn't, that seems yeah. like more of a nightmare even than the first one. Right. And then the other, the other, the way you asked the question, I think is also really important to think about nobody wants to become disabled right it's just not Mm -hmm. what a person wants to do so so if we think of ourselves and by we i mean humanity think of ourselves as all that you know we're in control of our environment and all of a sudden the aliens come down like oh honeys (laughs) look at they built they built a little shippy ship and it went to orbit oh that's so cute okay now (laughs) that's dangerous don't do that anymore you guys go sit down. You're God, come on, darlings. I mean, that could be the way it is, right? That they would think of us as disabled and therefore not competent to go out into the galaxy. And that'd be a hit. Mm-hmm. I think people talked to us before about the the psychological and social and cultural adjustments people would have to make that we are not on top of this pyramid anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah, we are now the puppies and You know, the the head of the household is home.
0: Let's also talk about your work on describing how uh, disabled people are actually ideal astronaut candidates. So in an essay for Scientific American titled The Case for Disabled Astronauts, and in a paper in the academic journal Futures titled An Alternate Vision for Colonization, you write about how a blind astronaut, for instance, would not be the liability to her crew that people might expect her to be, but actually an enormous advantage. And I'm reminded uh, through reading these academic papers of yours about a character in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, the blind A&R, uh chief engineer, uh, whose name is Hemmer, who is able to perform his engineering tasks just fine. In fact probably better than most of his compatriots. So tell me about how a blind astronaut on the International Space Station would be just as invaluable as Hemmer is to the Enterprise.
1: So first we have to look at the environment that that person is going into, right? If you drop me on the International Space Station right now with no modifications for anything, I'm not sure that I would be in any kind of advantage because none of their computer equipment is accessible we haven't thought about what I would need up there to stay oriented in zero gravity, right, Uh, which Mm -hmm. is a whole other interesting thing. Um, But if we acknowledge that I belonged there and made some adjustments to how that environment was built, there's no reason that I couldn't, first off, do my job. I mean, I do my job here as well as anybody else. There's no a priori reason to assume I would not do my job just like everybody else on the International Space Station. Um, And then you get to situations where emergencies might happen. So one of the first things to go is always the lights, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then you've got sighted people who are competent and responding to an emergency. But for them, the absence of lighting creates an extra stressor. I mean, we know there was the fireboard, the mirror station, right, where they were struggling partly because they couldn't see through the smoke. Partly it was because the smoke was stinging their eyes a lot because their their thing was on fire and they were in orbit and they were scared out of their minds, no doubt. It was a terrible situation and we're all glad that everything worked out as well as it did. But if I had been there, I would not be hesitating and squinting and struggling to see the fire. I would be pointing my fire extinguisher at the source of the heat and the sound. To some extent, that's probably what he did. But he had in his way this struggle to see, which was slowing him down and making his situation harder for him because his natural environment is to be able to look at things. And if you take that away from someone, then they're no longer in their natural environment. Therefore, they're stressed. And, you know, you can always rise to the occasion. But if you don't have to rise, if there's no occasion to rise to, (laughs) then you have more cognitive resources at your
0: disposal. Right. So this speaks to what you were saying before about how the built environment is not as universal as it needs to be and how what we need to do is build our environments using universal design to make everyone's job easier and also more accessible to uh, folks with disabilities.
1: Right, exactly. And really, honestly, this isn't a matter of wouldn't it be sweet of us to do these things? space is a profoundly disabling environment space is always trying to kill you no matter what you're doing up in space space is like huh i could probably kill these people if i try a little harder (laughs)
0: at
1: least i could at least take a couple of them i could at least hurt them a little bit space is scary and it's dangerous and we don't we cannot control everything that happens if we send a crew far from earth even to the moon where they can't get back right away. Disability will happen. There will be accidents, there will be injuries. Bone loss occurs, people, so people will break limbs, right? We know that there is a, an ophthalmological condition that we can't quite explain yet um, in microgravity where people lose visual acuity.
0: Right. And
1: right now it's not so bad. They just, you know, they lose a little bit of acuity. It's, it, they don't like it. No big deal because they can still mostly see, but what if that gets worse? And what if you're halfway yeah. to Mars when that gets worse? Yeah. And what if you're halfway to Mars when when you can no longer hear? If you have some kind of pressure loss and you, you have an astronaut that becomes deaf, uh, the other astronaut's still going to be able to communicate with that person effectively. Um, will that person be able to respond effectively to your audible alarm? Shouldn't we have mm-hmm. visual alarms as well? I mean, you could decide. If you're that kind of person, you could decide that if someone becomes disabled in space, we're just going to chuck them out the airlock because honestly, you really can't afford to have people around breathing and eating that aren't contributing. So we could be those kind of people, but I I really hope we're not. Yeah, um, me too. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what kind of people we are, but I hope we're not that kind of people. <laughs> but that I mean, that is a cultural, I mean, that can happen, right? All
0: right.
1: I don't think it's to the advantage of the mission, right, because you don't want your only doctor or your only pilot to become useless to your crew, not able to do his job because of a disability. So we need for every mission a disability officer, someone that can say, okay, like, is this all stuff accessible? So if we get halfway to Mars and our surgeon has an accident and goes blind, can that person still accomplish their share of the work? We need people to be always doing their share of the work, right?
0: Right, this is such a great point that you're bringing up that disability will happen in space because space is an unforgiving and unpredictable environment. And we need to be prepared to accommodate all kinds of disabilities in our space exploration. So Sherry, have you brought any of these amazing ideas to NASA and if so, Mm -hmm. what do they think of them?
1: Oh my gosh, so I am so excited to be a member of Mission Astro Access which is a group of folks who are looking at what do disabled people need in space? And so what we have been doing for the last year is chartering and sometimes just getting a couple seats on zero G parabolic flights, which uh, are amazing. It's that thing that NASA calls the, well, NASA doesn't call it that, the thing that people call NASA's vomit comet, right? Where it Mm -hmm. flies up in the air really hard and then it tips over the top and dives down toward the earth and you get about 20 seconds of zero gravity. And in those 20 seconds of zero gravity, you've got, you have 20 seconds to do a thing. You can test a piece of equipment. You can test a, a procedure. You can simulate something. And then the 20 seconds are over because you're going to hit the ground so you pull up, right? So you get maybe, I think we had on our first flight, 15 parabolas. And so we're working on what is it that people need? What is it that a blind person needs in zero gravity to stay oriented if there's no down I'm pretty oriented sitting in my room right now, but if I were floating in the air without my feet on the ground or without some kind of auditory cue to keep me oriented, I I might be a little bit lost. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're looking at what accommodations, what modifications you need to make to the built environment in zero G to make sure that people with mobility disabilities, uh, wheelchair users, um, People with amputations, blind people, deaf people, what is it that you need to do to your environment to make all that accessible? So we had one parabolic flight last year in October, and we will have a second one this fall, and we've chosen the folks who are going to go on that flight, and I get to go again. I'm very excited. I know, I know, I know. It is the most amazing sensation in the world. And so uh, we are very fortunate that we have a couple astronauts on our board of directors. We've got some NASA people who flew with us on the first flight. So I think that not just NASA, but Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, SpaceX, I mean, they're all sort of listening, partly because if 25% of the people in the world have some kind of disability. Nobody who is a for-profit company wants to cut 25% of people out of their potential customer base, right? So at least there's that. I mean, there's other reasons too, right? Um, (laughs) And as you age, so 46% of older folks in the United States have some kind of disability, even though they might not identify as disabled. Mm -hmm. So if you want all those people to fly to space with you, or if you want to be able to hire the best scientist or the best pilot or the best administrator for your space station, you want to be able to pick the person that you want, not the person that you want who also is not disabled.
0: So you're redefining what the right stuff is in terms of, you know, that that phrase has always been used for defining what it means to be a qualified astronaut, but uh, you're expanding that concept.
1: Yeah, and right now, I think where we can push this to is this. If your heart and your spine and your lungs and your brain can withstand the stress of launch and reentry, because we can't do anything about the G forces, right? That's really going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Then probably we can make space accessible to you. Those are the real, real world physiological limits right now. And we get a space elevator that will change, right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's all about the stress of getting you up there. Right now, that's the limiting factor because I don't want to kill anybody by launching them to space. <laughs> and we don't. And nobody wants to make it your last trip. Like you can go up, but you can't come back down.
0: Right, right. Of course. Yeah, I am so looking forward to this future reality that you are helping to build, uh, where space is accessible to virtually anyone who wants to go. That would be a dream come true. I've got just one last question for you, uh, which is bringing us back to Star Trek. So we've seen a few disabled crew members in Star Trek. Like we've mentioned, we have Hammer on Strange New Worlds, who is blind. Jordi LaForge is probably the most famous disabled character in Trek. Uh, And then there was a crewman in a wheelchair in Star Trek Discovery. But honestly, that's just a really small slice of the diversity of disabilities that we know to exist here on Earth. So Sherry, if Star Trek writers came back to you to help them develop a way to increase the amount of representation of disabilities in Star Trek, how would you advise them? What would you say to Star Trek writers uh, about how they could make the show more inclusive to disabilities in current or future shows?
1: Ooh, what a great question. So first off, can I just lodge a friendly complaint about Jordi LaForge? I love Jordi LaForge. Probably my favorite character. I don't know. I got a lot, nah, yeah. <laughs> whatever, but he's not functionally blind. True. It's the medical model that happened. They took mm. his blindness and they gave him a hat to take it away. Here's your not blind guy hat, wear it,
0: yeah. wear it all yeah.
1: the damn time. Don't take it off. So if I had a hat like that, and I, I probably wouldn't object to having a hat like that, it'd be all right with me, but I would have my cane in my back pocket because what if that technology fails? He's not the super capable blind person when his tech fails. You don't see him like with his, with his cane zipping along the hallways or whatever the modification of the cane will be, though. People keep trying to build us a new white cane, but really, honest to God, it's a pretty good piece of tech just the way it is. But he doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> function as blind. So he's got the label, but he doesn't shoulder the responsibility.
0: Ah, uh, that's a great point.
1: So the person in the wheelchair, I can't remember that character's name.
0: I don't know that they have a name, honestly. Oh, I, oh. I'm unsure. Yeah, it was just okay, a, well, sort of the background extra. Yeah, <laughs>
1: um, but I mean, but I mean, they're on a spaceship where they can roll around. That's a pretty good deal, right? They can roll around. There, there's no steps. I don't think there's. There might not be any steps on the whole Starship Enterprise. What do you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but the built environment of Star Trek is not suitable for a real blind person who functions without vision. I haven't figured out how Hammer does this thing. I haven't watched all those episodes yet, but I haven't quite figured out, like, how does he read his readout?
0: Yeah, that is a really good question. I I don't know. I wish they had explored that a little bit more, where maybe there was a, a bit more of an audio component to the computer, reading him data uh yeah, uh, <laughs>
1: you don't see him with his hands on it, do you? I need to ask him. I...
0: Oh, maybe that's why they have tactile interfaces in in terms of like still this, there are buttons on the on the computer consoles, and it's not all just a touch screen. But no, you're you're bringing up a really great point that um, you know I wish Strange New Worlds had dealt a little bit more about that in terms of the, what the interface looks like for Hammer that allows it to be universally accessible to somebody who is blind.
1: Yeah, so I mean, they have explanations for it. He's got this psychic power, but can we not fill in that gap physiologically? Can we fill in that gap by building our machines so that they work for everybody?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Wouldn't it be cool if there were Braille door numbers on those crew cabins?
0: Oh, that would be really cool.
1: Why couldn't they have that?
0: Yeah. Why
1: couldn't they have? Wouldn't it be cool if they do a they do a lot of calling audibly through the ship? Where is the captioned printout, the little screen that gives the deaf crew members that same information at the same time?
0: Yeah. I mean, um, they have all the, the computers on the walls, right? There, there should be a captioned version of that message, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's cool with me if they wear a little wristband, but then everyone should wear that little wristband because if you design a tech, it's universal design again, right? If you design tech so that... The deaf and the blind and the deaf-blind person all have access to the alert at the same time. That's the tech you want everybody to have. You really, you want the tech that buzzes your wrist when there's an emergency. So in case, what are you like? A guy's got headphones on. Does he know about the red alert? I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is great. I mean, because like you said, with the uh, mirror space station fire, what if the Borg are attacking the Enterprise and there's smoke everywhere? Yeah. Uh, you need to still be able to transmit crucial information about the invaders or whatever.
1: Yeah. People at conferences always say to me, don't worry about it. Disability will be eradicated in the next X number of years. And so after I get over the idea that the world would be better if I were eradicated, which always which always I let hang there for a couple beats. Mm. So you're gonna solve you're gonna solve the problem by genocide. Is that cool with you? Like,
0: so uh, my existence here. Let's is, not do that. <laughs>
1: let's not do that. Let's not do that. And also, it's not gonna happen. There will always be levels of ability and levels of disability within a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if we're going, to, it may, 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 even if we all transition our brains into machines, there will still be moments when one machine is broken and another machine is not unless we're going to be bastards and just go, like, oh, that's a broken machine on the, on the garbage heap. You go, buddy. If your answer to the question is genocide, then you just need to sit with that ethical problem for a little while because um, disability is always going to be with us. There's always going to be that variety of abilities happening in the world. And so then your ethical and your practical question is what are you going to do to address that? And can you come out of that after you've made those choices, feeling human, feeling Mm. like you really deserve the name human or have you become something else?
0: Wow. Sherry, you've given me so much to think about. I wanna wrap it up here by just saying thank you so much for spending time with me on Strange New Worlds. Uh, Just one final quick question. How can our listeners follow your work on the internet? Because I know they're going to want to find out more about all the great things that you do.
1: There is astroaccess.org where we have our, um, our stuff about our zero-g flights. I do have a website, uh, sherrywellsjensen.com, which you know could do some updating, but it's there. <laughs> and I'm on Facebook with just my name. And I'm just really, I, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. Every time I'm lucky enough to to, to have a really good interview like this, and you're uh, just really smart and articulate and ask really good questions, and you push me to think of things in new ways and say things in new ways that I haven't said before. And I'm just always grateful for that. And I want to thank you for the time you spent with me, actually, because it, really, it was really helpful and interesting to me as well.
0: Thank you so much. That means a lot. And let's go and find those Star Trek prop masters and get them to put Braille on the doors, every single door on the Enterprise.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, let's do it. Let's start a campaign.
0: (laughs) That was Professor Sherry Wells Jensen on disability and inclusion in space exploration and in Star Trek. Wow. Talking to Sherry was just a blast. I really love interviews like these, conversations that make me stop and think, that make me step into another person's shoes and consider the world from a vantage I'd previously never considered. As an able-bodied person, I never have to ask whether a Starfleet vessel or a NASA spacecraft is built for me, because of course they are. But my conversation with Sherry today completely convinced me that we should be committed to universal design in everything that we build, including our spacecraft, both real-world spacecraft and the fictional ones that inspire us on screen. One of my strongest beliefs is that space is for everyone. Not a single person on this planet is undeserving of the wonders that await us in the cosmos. Space doesn't belong to just astrophysicists and astronauts, rocket scientists and extraterrestrial linguists, or dare I say it, billionaire tech CEOs. So creating environments in which we can all participate is not only the right thing to do, But it will make space exploration safer and better for everyone. You know, in preparation for interviews with an academic like Dr. Wells Jensen, I usually try to read a few of their publications ahead of time. And I have to say, rarely do I enjoy that process as much as I did for Sherry's papers. So you'll find links to a few of them in the show notes if you'd like to check them out and learn more. Don't forget that you can follow me on Twitter at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I, and this podcast at Science of Trek. If you're enjoying this content, help spread the word by telling your friends about our show or by leaving a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app. Next time on Strange New Worlds, we'll be talking to clinical psychologist, Dr. Jason Von Stietz about psychological themes in some of the most recent Star Trek streaming shows like Lower Decks and Star Trek Strange New Worlds. Until then, see you out there.